What's happening, people? How are you guys? I don't know what to do with that just now. I don't know what that video or me or this new podium, you know. Not sure. So, hey, it is great to see all of you this morning. And here's what I want you to know before we get underway. Uh, we are doing something that's really important to us as a church. In fact, you might have seen it this week uh, on the city or uh, on Facebook if you are connected to either of those mediums. Uh, but we're going to have a season of prayer. In fact, uh, to be exact, five solid days of prayer, literally 24 hours a day for five solid days. That's going to start March 10th and go to March 15th. And what we're asking is that all of you, every single one of you, plug in to that, that week of prayer that we're going to be doing. What that means is literally every hour we're hoping to have at least one person uh, that is kind of on the schedule to be praying, and we're actually opening up the hub for that entire five days, the offices, the little conference office there in the offices, uh, to come down and to be a part of that. And we're doing that because what we really know and believe as a church is, you know what, the thing that God is going to really use to fill up these seats, to impact our city, uh, to really uh, even draw us closer to Him is going to be prayer, more than being clever or creative or compelling. We love to use those things, but it really comes down to Christ coming and dwelling among his people, and prayer is the powerful medium for that. And so we are asking you to sign up for a slot on the city. Now, if you have not signed up to the city at all, uh, you can do that after this service right out there in the uh, commons at the regroup table. We're going to have a computer set up there where you could sign up to the city, and you could pick those dates. If you're already on the city, please get on the city this week and uh, sign up for a slot or two slots or whatever. I know for some of us it's going to mean like two in the morning or one in the morning. Uh, I encourage you, man, make that your, your thing. Then go, I'm taking 1 a.m. for Jesus' name. That would be awesome, all right? Uh, some of you are like, oh, I'm going to take 1 p.m fine, all right? Um, but boy, the, the more we get signed up for this, the better it's going to be, because again, we're really asking God to do big stuff on behalf of Redemption Church and through Redemption Church, and prayer is going to be the way that, that really that's going to get accomplished. And so it is a week of prayer, and it's going to be awesome. Please sign up this week so we kind of know uh, what spaces are filled up, and we'll keep pushing it from there. So uh, that'll be great. Awesome. Perfect. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to get right underway and to business. Jesus, I thank you for today. And, and I thank you in a very special way for today uh, because of what we get to undertake. And I pray that uh, we don't treat um, this series lightly. I know even in last hour, I was uh, just so absolutely humbled by your grace, by the word of your grace, by the proclamation of your grace. And I pray that we will realize that grace is something that uh, worked in us before we ever had a want of you. And that grace changes us fundamentally to being in you. And from that grace grows us so that we will one day look completely like you. And so I pray that we will be lovers of biblical grace, that we will be hungerers of biblical grace, that we will want to exhibit and learn and understand what it means to model so great a grace that you've bestowed on us. So teach us as a church this morning, uh, may we just come alive, and that's what I'm praying, that you come and you dwell among us and we become alive in the spirit of grace. So we look to you, we need you. We just beg of you to be with us in powerful ways this morning. Through your word, in your spirit we pray. Amen. 
So it's interesting, I think about uh, uh, somebody that's become very dear to me uh, over the course of the last 25 to 30 years of my life, uh, which is a mentor, a friend that I've actually never met, but has made an indelible mark on my life, which is the Apostle Paul. See, when I think about Paul, for, for me, Paul is not just like a biblical figure or a character. He has definitely been, been one of the chief voices that have shaped my life and shaped my perspective and shaped my understanding of God. And I know when people think about the Apostle Paul, they have different images. You know, for some you go, Paul is a missionary, because that's how you see him. And some see Paul as a theologian. Right, And that's your vision of that particular individual. Some, probably like me, I see him very much as like a church planter because it's something that I have a heart for. And so that's kind of how I see him. But we see Paul in different ways. And sometimes his critics see him in different ways as well. Some people look at Paul and they say, well, Paul is very harsh. Right? And just to the point. Some see him as aggressive and uh, a little bit uh, biting in the ways that he says things. Some people look at Paul and they say, that guy's a sexist, right? And it's just all about men and it's very little about women. And some people see Paul in those ways. And I think if we had Paul here today and we said, Paul, a lot of people see you in a lot of different ways, good press, bad press. How would you define yourself? How would you see yourself? And I think his definition would be really different than ours. Because I think he would be the guy that would say, man, more than anything else, I don't see myself as that, or as that, or as that. I see myself as one thing. I see myself as a person completely engulfed and consumed by Christ and His grace. That it's all about Christ. It's all about grace. Paul would make much of grace and much of Christ, and he would go on and on and on about, I see myself as being only in Christ because of His grace. That would be his definer, his big idea. Because if you look at the life of Paul, he was a man who would say, it was grace that turned me, and it was grace that changed me, and it was grace that defined me, and it was grace that mobilized me, it was grace that compelled me, it was grace that constrained me, it was grace that I preached, and grace that I sought to live, and grace that I needed, and grace made me strong when I was weak, and grace gave me zeal when I was down. Grace, grace, grace. Grace, that would be Paul. There was nothing Paul seemed to love more than grace. For his writings and his teaching, it is the pivot. He refers to grace well over 200 times. It's grace, grace, grace. In grace, by grace, for grace, through grace. He would talk about all those kinds of things. And so Paul would say, my whole mission and joy and ambition was a celebration of and indebtedness to the grace of Christ, the grace of God, the grace of the Holy Spirit. So it's no wonder that in the course of his ministry, he would set out to have one particular book or writing that would just seek to showcase this thing that he loved and knew he needed and forever had shaped him. And so it's really that motivation, I believe, that drove Paul to write the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in Ephesians uh, pretty much up until early June. We're going to hang out in Ephesians for a few months here. And, uh, And I have to tell you personally, I am 
I am in a way that's very unique and, and even a little bit surprising to me, um, not, not for maybe normal reasons, but, but I, I find myself far more humbled in approaching this book than probably a lot of books that I have the opportunity to preach uh, and to, to be integrated with as far as uh, communication goes. Um, and, and part of that is because I, I became a pastor really young. I was in my early 20s when I became a pastor. And even then, I knew that I was not equipped. I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared. I didn't even want to try to preach the book of Ephesians until I was past 40, Right? which is perfect that it's my 42nd birthday, the day I start Ephesians. I'm like, okay, I waited a couple extra years for good measure before I tried to tackle this book. And the reason for that is because I honestly look at the book of Ephesians and I go, it, it, is, it is wild, it is elegant, it is lofty, it is deep, it is dense, it is powerful, it is inspiring, and it's all jammed into six chapters. It is a tightly packed book. It is an impressive feat from the hand of Paul, which is really from the heart of the Holy Spirit, right? It is a powerful book. And so I've waited a long time before I dare even attempt it. But now is kind of that opportunity. And I love this because it's all integrated with the series we just had, right? So you think about Paul. He goes into the city of Ephesus, 52 A.D., and he labors, and he works, and he preaches, and he shares, and he's just at, at, at the mercy of circumstance, but he's driven by the grace of God to plant a church, right? And for three years, he goes after it, and finally, in 55 AD, man, the church lights up. It's on its way. Huge revival. Great things are happening, but boy, that took a toll on Paul, right? I mean, it really drove him into the ground, and it took a toll on that early little church there in Ephesus that blew up into kind of a mega church. But boy, they were faithful and they trusted God. Well, now it's 62 AD, right? Paul hasn't actually been in Ephesus for five years. He hasn't met with the elders of the church of Ephesus for three years. And now he's going to write this letter. Now, what's interesting about this is while the people of Ephesus are engaged in sort of a combat, Paul, he's in prison. So he's in Rome, it's 62 AD, he's isolated from the churches, he's been put in prison pretty much just for his faith, and while if we were to have that happen to us, we might be bitter or angry or frustrated, this isn't fair, I didn't earn this, I didn't do anything wrong, why am I here? Paul doesn't look at it that way. This is kind of like for Paul, the first time he's been able to take a vacation in like 20 years, right? He's stuck in jail, he can't do anything else but reflect. He can think about the last 20 years of his life. He can think about the grace of God. He can think about the transformation that has come. And so he has this opportunity then in prison to say, you know what? I'm going to take out some time and I'm going to write on the grace of God. In fact, what makes Ephesians so interesting as a book, it is the only book of Paul's 13 letters that is not driven by a circumstance. In other words, you read Corinthians, they've got questions, they've got problems. Paul has to say, stop doing this, start doing that, you're blowing it here, you need to correct there. That's what he has to do in 1 Corinthians. He has to do it in 2 Corinthians. He has to do it in Galatians where they've lost grace. He has to do it in Philippians because there's all sorts of problems with people fighting in the church there. He has to do it in Colossians because they're getting wooed by other people. He has to do it in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, all circumstantial. Ephesians is the only book that Paul ever will write that is purely... I just want to tell you about the truth of God. That's it. 
In that sense, we said, you know what? When he went to Ephesus and Acts, it was like this muddy, bloody ground war. Ephesians, though, was like this high aerial bombardment of truth after truth after truth, highly elevated, highly exalted. It's like a bomber run of theology and doctrine and promise and glory about grace. That is what drives this whole robust, powerful letter. And again, it is highlighting again and again and again the greatness of grace. And where this letter is going to begin is in what we call ancient grace. Ancient grace that Paul wants to highlight. Now, to get there, he's got to get through some introduction. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Paul. Paul. We can look at that and go, oh yeah, we know the guy. We've just been talking about him. But I remind you of where this man has come from. He wasn't always Paul. He was once Saul. Named after one of the tallest, one of the strongest, one of the vainest of all the kings of Israel. And I think it was a very fitting name for him to have. Because that was Saul before he ever had contact with Jesus. He was a man of the establishment. He was well-known, well-regarded, well-revered. He had power. In fact, in that sense, Paul was full. He was powerful. Unstoppable, comfortable, respectable, commendable by the masses of Israel. And he probably felt pretty good about himself, right? This powerful, fair, pharisaical Saul. But then something happened one day on the Damascus exit where relentless grace grabbed a hold of this man, right? Relentless grace. It was the will of God that grabbed his life. And you got to think about that moment. Right Here is Saul going to Damascus, and he is a seeker of Christ. I want you to know that. Saul was a seeker of Christ. He says, I am seeking Christ's followers to shut them up, crush them down, and kill them if necessary. I know Jesus, and I hate Jesus. I know this Christ, and he's a liar, he's a phony, he's a false prophet, he's a false god, and deserves death. He earned his death, and his followers need to die too. That is Saul. And while he hated, hated Jesus, and was seeking to destroy all that Jesus held dear, Jesus was seeking Paul when he was Saul. That one that was breathing threats, saying, I have a hateful heart. God says, well, you know what? I'm seeking you to realign your heart to my purposes. And it was the grace of God that stepped into Saul's life and changed him in an instant. Right? So when Paul begins to write, don't read this book as some impersonal doctrinal tract. Like he's like, oh, okay, this hasn't really changed me. It's just kind of intellectual. No, even his first word, Paul has weight. He remembers, I used to be Saul. I used to be a hunter of the church. I used to be a hater of Jesus. But by the will of God, grace grabbed me and changed me. It changed everything about me. My name reflected the tallest and the vainest of Israel. Now my name, Paul, means small. I am nothing, he said to the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20. 
because of Christ. Nothing. And he lived his life now in the context of nothing. Working, suffering, preaching, beating, mocking, witnessing. Powerless. He went from powerful to powerless. And yet in the powerless state, he felt most full for the first time. Most full. Because in grace and by grace, you know what? He wasn't trying to pursue joy or thankfulness or worship through his own merits or means or conditions or esteem or praise or whatever. He he knew. It was only in grace and by grace and for grace and through grace, and he came to comfort with that. It was like he just knew, man, I I can let go of all of that. Everything that I counted as, as pursuit and worth is lost now because I have Christ in his grace. So yes, I am now Paul, not because of anything I have done. In fact, if you look at everything I've done, it's very bad. But through his grace, I have become something that I could have never become otherwise. He loves grace. And so this Paul, set out to be an apostle by the will of God, is motivated by grace. You have to be. We look at apostle, we go, wow, what an esteemed title. I want to be an apostle. You know what an apostle was in their day? Uh, We're going to send you out. Culture won't like you. Satan will come after you. You're probably going to die young. Good luck. You're going to plant churches that stab you in the back like five years later. Good luck. You're going to have traveling companions that say they're your friend, but as soon as the nickel stops coming to them, they're going to throw you under the bus. In fact, so much so, you're going to go to jail sometimes, and their whole ambition, Paul, is to make your time in prison bad. Welcome to apostleship. Don't look at apostle like, oh, it's this great high term. No, it's a powerful term, but it is a mistreated phrase. For Paul was a mistreated man, but he was held by grace. And it was all through the will of God. And so he makes much of grace. And in this context, he makes much of grace to the saints who are in Ephesus. Saints. Now, how many of you grew up in a Catholic tradition? Good number of you here, right? Now, what does it take to become a saint in the Catholic heritage? Well, here's what it takes. You have to be Catholic. Good start. Um, From there... You have to have a local following that kind of revere your ministry. And then you have to do a miracle, which is then confirmed. And then you have to do another miracle to show it wasn't just a fluke. And then that that has to be confirmed. And so you have to have these miracles. You have to have this local following. You have to be Catholic. And then the next step to becoming a saint is you have to die. Congratulations. You have to die. And after you're dead, people come together. They say, that person seems saintly. They seem good. They had a local following. They had a couple of miracles. We should consider them for sainthood. And then they decide whether you're going to get sainthood. And eventually, a group comes together. They say, yep, that's a saint. And they make you a saint. That's, that's what it takes in the Catholic Church. Now, there's those of us that didn't grow up Catholic. And so, we understand saints as really, really good people. Right? Grandma, she's a saint. Right? She makes cookies, she loves us, always gives us gifts. She's a saint. Or sometimes we use it in a negative way. Well, don't you think you're a saint? Right? But what we're saying is, well, you're coming across as a little self-righteous, so you must think you're saintly. But in every context, being a saint is because you've done something good. You've done something big. You've done something worthy of credit, and so you're a saint. That's how we typically use it as human beings. For Paul, it's completely different absolutely different. Think about the Ephesians. They had been perverse, criminal, 
idolatrous. They had been um, just uh, riddled with the occult and sin and a detest for what was true. And then the grace of God stepped into their life. And in one second, literally in one second, they entered sainthood. The moment you and I bowed our knee to Christ, we went from sinner to saint. We didn't need a local following. We didn't need to die. We didn't need miracles. We don't have to be known as being the best person in the room. It's simply sainthood. Moment one, set apart, right? That's what it means. To be a saint means to be set apart, to be wholly different. That is sainthood. What he is saying here is you are special. Every single one of you, if you know Christ in this room, you are special according to Ephesians chapter 1. It's just the introduction and it tells you what you are. You are special. And here's what's great. It isn't saying you are special because you've established your specialness through faithful accomplishment. And equally, it doesn't say that you lose your status through erasing it by foolish decisions. You can't establish it. You can't erase it. And the reason is simple. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what this isn't saying. This isn't saying, well, you're a saint because you are faithful to Christ Jesus. doesn't say that. Look at the wording. Does it say because you're faithful to? It doesn't say that, right? Words are precise. They mean something, right? So this is saying you are a saint. You are special, not because you're faithful to him. You are a saint and you are special because he is faithful to you. That's what this is saying, right? You are in Christ Jesus who is faithful. That's Paul's intent here. That's what he's saying here. Right? He is faithful to you when you're not faithful to him. Man, I love that because you know what? There are a lot of days and a lot of weeks where, frankly, I am not faithful to the Christ who is faithful to me. There are weeks where I doubt. There are days where I'm frustrated. There are days where I am not gracious, but I am law-bent and applying law to everybody around me. There are days where I am embarrassed when somebody says, that's my pastor, and I go, oh, I don't want to be associated with that weird evangelical thing. And I go, How do I? You know, like, like I shouldn't be proud of it. I can go like, oh, no, put my head down. Don't say that. Not out loud. Because I'm not being as faithful as I should be, but praise Jesus, he is faithful to me because I am in him. See, Paul wants us all to realize what our identity is. It is in Christ. Your identity, if you are sitting here and you know Jesus, your identity is in Christ. There is nothing, in my opinion, more powerful in the Christian life than when you take ownership of that identity. Paul is going to use that term, in Christ or in him, 12 times between verse 1 and verse 14. 12 times. In the book of Ephesians, he's going to use it over 30 times. In his overall letters, he uses it well over a hundred times. If you were to say, hey, what is Paul all about? He is all about the grace of God that puts us in Christ Jesus. That is our position. That is our identity. See, I think this is powerful because, again, we find our identity in many areas. 
here under the sun, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes. We find our identity in status or in job or education. We find it in our kids or in our parents or affluence. Find it in our job or our home, our self-acceptance, our life fulfillment. We find it in our personal branding, right? We brand ourselves a lot. Sometimes it's written into us from family or friends, opponents, critics, culture, good times, bad times, whatever it is. We, we just kind of root this identity from our surroundings, right? That's what happens. And, and in that, what we then spend our life doing in this identity crisis, basically, is we spend all of our life either earning identity or erasing identity. Well, I don't want to be seen as that, so I'm going to be that, right? And we're, we're left chasing Constantly engineering the identity, right? Constantly hoping that this new identity will fill me up and letting go of that old identity will make me free. And we go through this whole routine on identity, right? And Paul wants us to know, man, let me do you a favor. Here's your new identity in Christ. It's in Christ. It's not what you do. It's not how you do it. It's not how well or how poor you do it. Your identity is in Christ. We are to live from his identity. So often we live for identity. We live for it. Paul says, no, you need to live in your true identity, which is his. Understanding what that identity means. In fact, in verses 3 through 14, he's going to say all sorts of stuff. He's going to load it up. And he's going to say, in Christ. Do you realize in Christ you are wanted, sought, rescued, freed, adopted, celebrated, loved? Do you realize that's what he's going to say? So, Do you realize you are gifted and blessed and assured? You are a son or a daughter. You are an heir. You are wanted, is what he's going to say. Do you realize that's how God feels about you? Do you realize that you are holy? Do you realize? Do you realize you are righteous? Do you realize? You realize all that you have. Not because you've earned it. Not because you're a good Christian now that you know Jesus. Not because you are better than the average or better than the person next to you or better than whatever. No, because you are in Him. And He is faithful to you. There is nothing that should humble us more. Nothing. And the reality is, the more godly we live according to grace is because of one reason. It's not because we cinch up the bootstraps and we do better things. It's only because we press into the one from whom grace flows. That's it. Paul is very certain of this. He's very certain. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? That's what he says in Galatians 2. He knows Paul is not such a godly man because he works hard. He's a godly man because he trusts deep in the one who holds his identity. And that is to be true for every one of us in this room. Grace. Grace. Grace is so central to Paul that no sooner does he say to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus His first word then is grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul knows the church in Ephesus is under strain and combat and they're in a tough environment and he could have opened this letter any number of ways. 
He could have opened the letter and said, strength and resistance to you. He could have said, resolve and discipline, Church of Ephesus. He could have said, be firm and be obedient. He could have opened with any one of those, but instead he opens up with the weirdest thing. He opens up with probably the most powerful and emotive word in the entire Bible, grace. Grace. See, and and here's why Paul knows this. Paul knows that oftentimes we try to be strong in life. And by being strong, what we mean is we're trying to be strong. We are trying to do the heavy lifting. We're trying to carry the burden ourselves. So we try to be strong. And Paul's been there, but then Jesus has taught him a great lesson. Paul, you want to know my grace is really just rolling and moving? My grace is sufficient when you're weak. Right? When you are weak, grace is strong. And so Paul can look at the Ephesians and say, ah, man, if I want to see a real strong church, a healthy church, it has to be a weak church. Because only when you're weak are you dependent. When you get independent, when you start thinking, I can think my way through this, I can fight my way through this, I can force my way through this, but without weakly going to the grace of God to energize you, man, you're going to be just, I hope you're strong enough. I hope you're strong enough. To combat anger, bitterness, fear, fatigue, hate, whatever it is. But boy, when we turn to grace and we are weak, man, that's where there's strength. Paul knows, as he wrote to Titus, that only grace will make us zealous for good works. We want to see people become zealous about obedience and zealous about being holy and zealous about doing right things. Grace makes you zealous. Law doesn't make you zealous. Force doesn't make you zealous. Grace makes you zealous. Paul knows this, so he says grace to you. Grace will make you strong. Grace will make you zealous. Grace also brings peace, which is why it makes sense. This is grace to you and peace. Everybody wants peace at some level, right? Deep, unrestricted peace. Not peace rooted in right conditions, because you're never going to have right conditions. As soon as you have a right condition, don't worry, it'll go wrong. Right? As soon as everything's going well, something will fall apart. As soon as you have a plan, it will meet the enemy and come unraveled. You're never, ever, I promise you, you're never going to experience lasting, long-term peace in this life if you're asking this life to establish peace. Won't happen. That is a guarantee. That's why Paul says peace from God our Father. Only God can bring true peace, not conditions. If you think, man, just, I just need work to kick in, I just need more money, I just need my kids to be different, I just need my attitude to shift uh, in yourself, you're never going to have peace. Never. Peace only comes through the presence of God. I say that often. Peace is not the absence of conflict, the absence of strife, the absence of hardship, the absence of suffering. Peace is the presence of God. And if you're not desperate for the presence of God, you will not experience peace. You just won't. You'll have little pockets of truce some good seasons here or there. You hope they carry for as long as possible. But you just want to have peace. So Paul knows, man, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking at this going, I thought it was just an introduction, man. I thought it was just like, what's up? It's not that. It's so dense. It's so packed. Paul knows what he's trying to say. And so from here, he wants them to understand grace. And he's going to do it in the most amazing way. He is going to rattle off, I will venture to say, the densest passage in your entire Bible. 
the densest passage that reveals some of the most profound truth. In fact, from verse 3 to verse 14, you ready? In the original language, that is one single sentence. 3 to 14, if you've got a Bible and you're looking, that is one sentence. In our language, we break it up, we throw periods in everything else. Paul was just man, master comma boy. Boom, boom, run on sentence. After my own heart, this guy was right here. I love the beauty of the run-on sentence. Paul understood the beauty of the run-on sentence right here. And here's what's great about this big run-on sentence. It does not tell you what to do. Every one of these truths is not going to tell you what to do. Every one of these truths is going to tell you what God has done for you. Now, why is that important? Because what Paul is going to say is basically you need to live your life to live the imperatives of the Bible in light of the indicatives of the Bible. Now, I know I just lost like half of you, like indicatives and imperatives. What do I do with that? Paul motivates us by saying the indicative. Here's what's true. God has done this for you. Because of this truth, this indicative, this fact, God has done this for you, you then live out the imperatives, the commands and the calling of God. Right? You have to know what he's done, and from that, you do. See, sometimes we don't emphasize grace enough what God has done. We don't emphasize blessing enough what God has accomplished. We don't emphasize the Holy Spirit, the work of God, the, the, the wooing factor. We don't do that. We just get to, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to stop this, you need to stop that. There's no motive other than just do what I tell you to do. That is not Paul. Paul's like, no, 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 no. you, you got to understand. Because Christ has done X, that's why we do what we do. And so he's going to take these verses and just say, here's what God has done. Live out based on the indicative, the truth. Right? That's how you live your faith. And so that's why he's just going to stack it up. Then he's going to get to verse 15 through the end and say, now here's what I pray you understand and live out. But it all starts with what he has done. And I love this because ultimately, what Paul knows in 202 words that's what he uses. It's like, this is Paul's version of a tweet, all right? That's what this is, all right? 202 words. It's a very long tweet. Um, but, but what Paul knows is that the pressures of earth are always on us, and the only way that we will effectively handle the pressures of earth is if he grounds us firmly in heaven, which is the weirdest deal. But again, that's that aerial bombardment thing. We have to be grounded in heaven to handle earth well. If we get grounded in earth, earth's problems, earth's frustrations, earth's hurts, that's all it is. It's frustration, it's pain, it's hurt, it's bitter, right? He goes, but if I ground you in heaven and you know what's true and you live from what is true and your identity is, is in what is true, it's going to go different. And so Paul sets quill to page and he explodes right off the bat in praise. I love this, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now understand the spirit of this explosion in verse 3. This is the kickoff. So imagine you're at a football game, you're in the stands, there's the field, but you know when it's ready to go when that cannon booms and everybody gets on their feet and the cheerleaders are going and the team takes the field. It's explosive, right? That's that scene for Paul. It's explosive. This is not some cold theologian in a tweed jacket and a bow tie giving us data. 
This is a guy who says, man, I have been touched. I have been changed by the grace of God. It's that right there, whatever that is. Ian's like, I don't know, I'm at the dash of the Enterprise right now. I'm not... Move power to warp nacelles. That just showed how nerdy I am right there. All right, so might be this. I'm going to go after it right now. Or not. It's probably that. All right. Don't worry, I'm just getting going, so give me a break. I can take a breath. All right. Woo! All right. Fantastic. All right. So Paul's fired up, I'm fired up, that thing got fired up. Everybody's fired up. Now we're ready to go. Here's what's cool about this passage. Just, just look at it for a second. Just look at it. It literally says, bless the blesser who is blessed with blessing. Genius. Paul is genius here. Bless the blesser who is blessed with blessing. And I want you to notice what it says. This is, it says, bless the blesser who has blessed you with some blessing. doesn't say that. Bless the blesser who has blessed you with blessings that you earn by your good deeds. doesn't say that. It says, bless the blesser who will eventually, one day, give you every blessing. doesn't say that. What it tells you, what it tells me, it tells every single one of us, is blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. By the way, that's past tense. You are currently blessed with every spiritual blessing. And I know some of you go, no, I'm not. There's no way I can be. How is that even possible? And there's different variations why we don't think we're blessed. Right? One variation is to say, no, 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 Matt, you don't understand. Blessings earned. It's like a piggy bank of blessing. Right? So I do good things in good ways for good people and for bad people, which earn me even more blessing. And I bank a bunch of blessing from God. I earn my blessing. But then if I lose my temper, get angry, get frustrated, get bitter, whatever it is, then I start to lose the potential for blessing. I, I'm emptying out the piggy bank. Right? So I earn or I, I, I remove blessing based on my deeds or the lack thereof. Well, that's, that's not true. Not according to this. According to this, you and I have every spiritual blessing. What God said in Christ is, I'm going to take all of you and give you all of me. You have every spiritual blessing. Now, does this mean you have every kind of blessing? In other words, what I, what I mean by that is you might go, well, Matt, I can't have every spiritual blessing because I don't have everything I want. He doesn't promise you're going to get everything you want. He promises he's going to give you every spiritual blessing. You go, but my bank account isn't full and my house isn't big enough and my kids aren't obedient enough and my marriage isn't happy enough. How can I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Well, you do. Now, again, you've got to go back to what they are. They are a spiritual blessing. Which means it's not every tangible blessing, it's not every practical blessing, but it is every spiritual blessing. But here's the cool thing about having every spiritual blessing. Those things touch the deepest you. See, the deepest you is a spiritual thing. The deepest you isn't a tissue thing, it's not a tangible thing, it's not a physical thing. The deepest you is a spiritual reality, it's a spiritual truth in that sense. 
And no matter how much wealth you have, no matter how much comfort you have, popularity, ease, whatever, it still can't tap into the deepest you, which is why you will see people with money and power and fame and alleged friends still be angry, depressed, bitter, unforgiving, unfulfilled, lost in life, insecure. Because all that stuff can't deal with the deepest us. Only spiritual blessing can deal with the deepest us. In other words, only spiritual blessing can rewrite our identity. And we need to kind of then go, I need to live in the scope of that identity. Again, it won't give you everything you want, but everything you need. It won't give you everything in life, but it'll give you everything to live life fully alive. Every spiritual blessing. And you go, well, man, how do I even experience that? The reality is it's proximity. It's proximity. You know, it's like uh, if, if you go to the blesser who blesses with every blessing, uh, what you're doing is saying, I believe you have every blessing. And what I also believe is I don't live in the context of what you've given me. Right? It's a little bit like American citizenship. You can, you can undermine that. You can not use that. You cannot live to the full potential of what you have, but you have it. Right? You might not live out the American dream, but you have every opportunity to do that because of your citizenship. It's really now about whether you're pressing into what is already true. Same thing here. You go, I don't feel like I have a blessed life. And my thing would be, then you're not going to the blesser. You're thinking a lot. You're frustrated a lot. You're angry a lot. You're depressed a lot. You're critical a lot. You're irritated a lot. But you're not seeking a lot. The key is seeking, and in seeking, believing that he has already given you every spiritual blessing. Every one of them. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You go, my neighbor. No, God is for you. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, if God gave Christ to us, for us, how will he not give us all things? Joy, to live life above circumstance, to let go of baggage, to live as more than a conqueror, to live freed and fulfilled and close and riddled with grace and awe and gratitude and thankfulness. Paul knew all of this. And so he can say with conviction, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in him. It has to be in him though. It's all in him. It's not in us. It's not in other things. It's not in other people. It's not in other circumstances. It's in him. So Paul says, man, blessed be God. He goes on, verse 4. says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Dun, dun, dun. This is a great verse. Some people look and go, uh-oh. He just said, chosen in him before the foundations of the world. If you've been running around the church for any length of time, this will be that issue about election or predestination, which is going to come up in just a second. Paul's going to use that word as well. And people look at that, election and predestination, and they get into the whole debate. You know, are we Calvinists or are we Arminians, right? And they go, no, 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 man, we just... Follow Jesus. That's what we follow. Who was the first Calvinist? No, I'm kidding. All right, so it's just a joke. All right. We follow Jesus, all right? But, but here's the deal with this. Um, 
sometimes this topic starts this kind of doctrinal turbulence, you know, and people are like, oh, what are we, what is this, what does it mean, everything else. Now, here's what I tell you, I'm going to be real simple about this. Um, the details of this topic, how God chooses, how God elects, how God predestines, you know what? Unfortunately, above my pay grade. If you said explain it, I could explain all the different views, and I'd still say at the end of the day, it's above my pay grade. I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't fully know what it means. I don't fully understand it. Now, some people go, oh, but what about the problems with it? Right? What if God chooses somebody? He doesn't choose others. And how do you navigate all of that? And I look at it and go, that's a first world problem with people that have too much time on their hands to think. In a lot of ways, I think that's what it is. And some will look at this and say, well, how do you approach it? Is it that God chose the way of salvation? Or is it that God chose the church? Or is it that God chose individuals? Which of those three is it that God chose? And I say, yes. All of the above and a mystery that I don't understand. But you know what? Here's the deal. Paul didn't write this so that we would get buried in that stuff. It's not even his motive. It's not on his radar. He's not thinking about that issue. Paul is writing a letter of encouragement. He's reminding who we are in Christ. And so the first motive for this is inspirational. He says to the church of Ephesus, he wanted you. He chose you. He digs you. He desired you. It's an encouragement meant to inspire, meant, them, meant for them to feel secure. If I go to my wife, Ellen, and I say, Ellen, I love you so much, and I chose you then, and I still choose you today, Ellen doesn't say, well, what about all the other women in the world? What about them being chosen too? She doesn't do that, right? She's like, well, no, what about those other girls you knew in high school? She doesn't do that. What she does is says, thank you, you love me and chose me. Right? It's inspirational. It's encouragement. That's why Paul says it. Another part of this is true. It's theological, which shows ancient grace. Before you would even so much as gasp wind or breath on this planet, God shows you. That's grace. If it's before you even showed up and he shows you grace, that's grace. Before you even did something stupid, which only took about seven seconds after your first gasp, and he says, I already chose you in grace. It is theological, but it's inspirational too. And it's personal. It's in him. It's in him. Our life is rooted in him. Our eternity is rooted in him. Our election is rooted in his sacrifice. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, you see this link between the people of God and Jesus, right? And it's said two different ways depending on the version. The first version is an ESV, English Standard Version. The second version is actually NIV. It should say that. It says ESV instead. It should say NIV. But here's what it says. It says, And to all who dwell on the earth, they will worship the beast. Everyone whose names have not been written before the foundations of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the way some versions say it. Other versions say, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Slightly different between the two. And you're kind of like, so was Jesus slain before the foundations of the world? Or was I written before the foundations of the world in a book that he would be slain for? And the answer is kind of yes. And the big idea there is your existence, your life is rooted in, connected to God's foreordained plan that he would be slain for you. 
and what you need to do more than anything else, instead of going, oh, tilt, I don't know what to do with all that. I need Doctor Who and his Taurus. No, I don't, don't do that. TARDIS, sorry. <laughs> Nerd in the front row. <laughs> Who is my first child? All right, so. Um, ah! Right? Instead of doing all that, you go, man. My life has always been hidden in Christ. Always. Before my life was life, my life was hidden in Christ. What a blessing. Now, how does this happen? I can tell you how it happens. Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, these he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's exactly how it happens. Now, if you say, well, Matt, what does that mean? I would say, I don't know. I don't know fully what that means, but here's what I do know. A chapter of the Bible that starts with, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and ends with the verse that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If it's between those two bookends, it must be pretty critical. Powerful, life-shaping truth. We are chosen in him to be conformed to him. I don't know what that means after that. I don't want to even desire speculation on that. But I know it's grace. Now you go, well, was this arbitrary? No, it wasn't arbitrary. Was it that God looked forward and saw that Matt Boswell would be a good seed, a good prospect, an excellent possibility? No, it's not that, because that would be by my works. I'm not saved by works. I'm not, in any way, he doesn't pursue me because I'm a good seed. In fact, I'm a bad seed that he pursues. He didn't pursue Paul because Paul was a good seed. Paul was a Christian killer. Right, So it's not that, but it's not arbitrary. What is the motivation that God uses to seek people? Verse 4, in love. He predestined us. In love. That's it. That's what mattered. And I love this word predestination in Greek. literally means, ready? Predestination. It's all I mean. It just means your destination is set pre. Woohoo! Pretty magical, right? But that is, again, meant to encourage and encourage you in the fact that he did this in love. It says, take courage. When life is bad, your destination is set. When you are weak, take courage. Your destination is set. When life is painful, take courage. Your destination is set. Live in that truth. Be rooted firmly in heaven and not in situation. Which is radically hard. It's hard. But that is the motivator that Paul looks at. That's why he says in Romans, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes the journey to that calling and purpose ultimately is very, very painful. Ask anybody in the Bible. They can tell you it was hard. But they also knew, man, my life is rooted in heaven. It's rooted in eternity. More than that, not only is it love that he predestines with, but there is this heart behind it. In love, he predestined us for adoption, it says, as sons through Jesus Christ. Again, this whole idea of being in Christ. But I love this here because it's so powerful because idols are fickle. Idols will let you down. But here he says, man, God chooses you. He predestines you. He saves you as a father. Right? He wants to make you an heir of everything he has. He wants to give you all access to all the things that he possesses. That's what it means to be adopted. In the Roman culture, when you were adopted by somebody, you received their name and you received everything that was theirs. 
right? The people of Ephesus would know this automatically. When they're told they're adopted by God, they go, wow, I'm an heir of all of that stuff. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You're an heir of God. All that God has, you now have. All that Christ has, you now have. That's why you can go to God and say, Father, we come before you now. You don't have to simply come and say, Jehovah, or Adonai, or Yahweh. You can say, Dad, because of who you are in Christ. When my kids were little, I'd come home and they'd say, Dieters, that was my nickname. I was Dieters. That Dieters word was just heartwarming and and was so affectionate and so um, freeing for me and freeing for them. It was the safe place to be Dieters. And God our Father is Dieters because we are in Christ and he brings us into this adoption. He becomes our dad. Why? says so that we would be holy and blameless before him. You want to know what holy means? It means to be uncommon. It means to be different. Now, I'll be honest, raw obedience isn't uncommon. Uh, There are uh, Muslims all over the world that are radically obedient to the point of strapping bombs on and crashing planes and killing anything that walks in their path for their holy cause. So obedience to religion isn't uncommon. What is uncommon, what is holy, is what the Holy Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, that is holy. That, that, that is that thing that God, as our dad, seeks to teach into us as a good deeders and to make us blameless without accusation. Now, what's crazy about this is that, you know what, God has already done this in Christ. In one very real sense, he's already done this in Christ. Remember, in Christ we are saints. We are already holy ones. That's what the word holy means. Holy ones or saint is the same thing. You are set apart already. You are already holy. As to righteousness, Paul already tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you already have the righteousness of Christ. If I ask the question, who here is as righteous as Christ, everybody that claims Christ should raise their hand. Because you're already as righteous as Christ. And when the enemy comes to God and says, what about that Matt Boswell? I'm going to accuse him of being this and being that. He's not always a good dad. He's not always a good husband. He's not always focused. He doesn't always pray. He does these things. I'm accusing him. And you know what God says? You can't bring a charge against God's elect because they are blameless in my sight. They are holy in my sight. Now, is that because of anything I do? No. It's because I'm in Christ. In him. It's always in him. Now, as we're going to see, he wants to take my position and see it become more of my practice, but that's exactly how he sees you. That's exactly how he sees me because we are in him, right? And as God did this, as God enacted this, it was according to the good pleasure of his will. That is a rich statement right there. Just, if you just focus on that, 
you realize that as God goes after you, as God grabs you, as God changes you, as God adopts you, he does this for the pleasure of his will. He digs you. He chose you. He wanted you. He delights in you. You put a song on God's lips. You do. Because you were in Christ, right? He says, you know, of all the things I would do, I want to I take that one, I want to take that Matt Boswell guy, as broken as he is, as frustrated as he is, as insecure as he is, as beaten down at times as he is, and I'm going I'm to take him, I'm going to adopt him, and I'm going to grow him in my grace, and I'm going to let him know that, man, he is, he is a pleasure for me to have as a son. That's what he does with every one of you. That is a pleasure right there. She is a pleasure. He is a pleasure. That is a pleasure of my will. And why does all of this happen? All of this blessing and choosing and adoption and holiness and blamelessness. Well, Paul says, it's for the praise of his glorious grace. It's always grace. It's all grace. It's full grace. Paul would look at grace and he would say, man, grace, it's amazing grace. And grace is benevolent grace. And grace is a conquering grace. Grace, it is dependable grace. Extravagant grace. Forgiving grace. Galvanizing grace. Healing grace. It is irresistible grace. And justifying grace. And kingly grace. Loving grace. Marvelous grace. Never ending grace. Overwhelming grace. Pursuing grace. Quieting grace. Redeeming grace. Sacrificial grace. Transforming grace. Unstoppable grace. Victorious grace. Welcoming grace. Extraordinary grace. Yearning grace. And zealous grace. Paul would look at the grace of God and say from the beginning in ancient grace he says I chose you wanted you cared for you live in you work through you in my beloved through grace so that you would know and live in grace let's pray together Jesus I pray that we don't see grace as some theological word empty of all practical merit I pray that we don't see grace as something that merely forgives those who want to be good and we call it done. I pray that we see grace as powerful, as healing, as transforming. We love you and your grace. Amen.